morning, everybody, and it's great to be with you again. Let's be quiet for a minute and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that as we face this incredibly important and very personal question, you will guide us by your spirit, encourage and bless and challenge us, meet us wherever we are in the way you want to speak to each one of us for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. So one of the privileges of being a vicar is that uh, you're called on often to take funerals. Not much these days, of course. I only tend to do it for people I've known well. Um, But whenever you take a funeral, you're aware that as well as huge mixed emotions, there's a question lurking everywhere. And it's the question for this morning. What happens when I die? Really profound, really practical, deeply personal for every single one of us. And we're going to try and tackle it this morning. You can't answer it at a funeral, and of course that's not what people want. They don't want answers at a funeral. They want compassion and help and support. Um, But this morning, I'm going to try and do what I think we very rarely do, and that is get a grasp of what scripture says about a really important subject. We've got to work hard at it, so I hope you're prepared uh, to do that. It's a question, of course, which has been asked since the beginning of time, and it's voiced by Job in the Old Testament. If a man dies, will he live again? Now, whatever we say this morning, I have to say we're only going to be paddling in the shadows, really. Um, death comes to every single one of us. That's being a bit melodramatic and sort of somber, but it's true. George Bernard Shaw said, death is the ultimate statistic. One out of one dies. Um, A philosopher called Heidegger said, dying my death is the one thing no one else can do for me. So the question for us is, What then? We're all going to die unless, of course, Christ returns first. But what happens then? Is there anything beyond? Or as some people say, nothing. Death has been described as the iron ring round existence. Some years ago, those of you who remember Patrick Moore, the astronomer, he was being interviewed on television. And there had just been a huge discovery made and a something claimed, which was that space was no longer regarded as infinite, it was finite. And the interviewer said to Patrick Moore, do you remember him ebullient and with his, you know, um, monocle in his eye and very excitable, yeah, yes, that's true, he said. And, um, well, what's there when space finishes, then when it comes to an end? And uh, Patrick Moore said, well, you can't ask that question. And he said, but I am asking that question. I want to know. And Patrick Moore then said, well, the problem is that the only way you can give any kind of answer is in terms of what's here in this world. So you can't then possibly know, really, what there is beyond. Everything that is expressed is in terms of analogy and illustration. Do you know, I have sympathy with the interviewer. Well, we do ask the question, you know. I have some sympathy with Patrick Moore, actually, um, because 
No one knows for sure every detail about what lies beyond. And everything that we're told, even in scripture, and even from the lips of Jesus, are what you might describe as an accommodation to our language, to our limited understanding. It's beyond our understanding, really. And what we're given in the Bible are hints and clues. Uh, some of them really encouraging and a tremendous blessing. Um, but that's how we should approach them, which means I think we shouldn't press any of them too literally. And that's to do with hellfire and all sorts of things too. So let's get on with it. Uh, death is a fact. Death is also incredibly painful. I don't mean the, the physical process of dying, because modern medicine has done a lot to alleviate that. But death is associated with pain. The pain of loss and grief, of anger, of regret, of guilt, all sorts of things. And that's why, in a way, this morning's subject is very painful for many people too. Here's C.S. Lewis coming to terms with the death of his wife, Joy. He wrote this. I look up at the night sky. Is anything more certain than that in all those vast times and spaces, if I were allowed to search them, I should nowhere find her face, her voice, her touch? She died. She is dead. Is the word so difficult to learn? And then he goes on, I had to learn that all relationships end in pain. It is the price that our imperfection has allowed Satan to exact from us for the privilege of love. So we do grieve. There's a huge amount of pain and agony. But as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians, we grieve but not like those without hope. And actually, even in this life, we reach a point where a vivid phrase someone's used, once used to me, the pain no longer disables. It doesn't go away but we're no longer totally and utterly disabled by it. So death is associated with pain. Death is also associated with fear. There's a literal fear of death um, because the most powerful instinct within any human being is the instinct for self-preservation. I think I'll probably share this with some of you before, but uh, years and years ago, Bridget and I, together with my mother, were in a cinema in Newcastle. And uh, we were about to watch the film Lawrence of Arabia, the opening music, very dramatic, had started. And then there was an incredible crash and everything went dark and there was dust and everything flying everywhere. It was one of these old-fashioned cinemas with a 90-foot high ceiling and a whole section of the ceiling had collapsed and come down. Fortunately, it fell into the front seats with nobody there. But I tell you, I was up out of my seat and I was halfway along the row and I was only fairly recently married before I remembered I'd got to go back and... Uh... <laughs> I say that to my utter shame, but you see, instinct is something you don't stop and think about. It's something that just is built into you. And the instinct for self-preservation is exactly like that. It's really, really powerful. But we not only run away from it, metaphorically, we run away from it as well, don't we? We say, if anything ever happens to me, people pass away, they don't die. We avoid the subject. And often when 
someone is dying and the closest person to them is there, they don't actually talk about it. They each know, but there's a sort of unseen barrier between them because they can't be open at that particular time. So there's a fear of death, both literal and metaphorical. Uh, more than that, and this sounds contradictory, we have actually a fascination with death, don't we? Years ago, there was a conference of people who were all involved with, with the dying. There were psychiatrists and funeral directors and doctors and counsellors and uh, nurses, all kinds of people. And they had this conference and they, they published a report of the conference in a magazine with a rather wonderful title, The Waiting Room for Death. And the single conclusion that they came to was that there is in our society today a running away from the fact of death. And we do. And yet, at the same time, the people who published the magazine said they sold out so quickly they had to reprint. So, although we run away from it and don't want to talk about it, we're absolutely fascinated by it. We want to know. That's why we ask questions. That's why people dabble in the occult, which, of course, the Bible expressly forbids. And you know the way people have fantasies about death, too. Um, some of them are bizarre. Some of them are very creative and wonderful. I mean, we're going to be stars in the sky, people tell their children. Um, I'm afraid if I step on your toes, I, I apologise. But uh, that famous stroke notorious poem by Scott Holland, Death is Nothing at All. I've only gone into the next room. Really? Really? Death is appalling. The damage it does to people, the hurt that it causes, the way it destroys people's lives and their happiness. And, you know, life is no longer the same again. Death is nothing at all. Of course it's something. It's something very significant. But there are people who've got, you know, all sorts of ideas that help them to feel better about it. Do you know the, the lovely poem by Rudyard Kipling? It goes like this. When Earth's last picture is painted and the tubes are twisted and dried, when the oldest colours have faded and the youngest critic has died, we shall rest, and faith, we shall need it. Lie down for an eon or two, till the master of all good workmen shall put us to work anew. And those that were good shall be happy. They shall sit in a golden chair. They shall splash at a ten-league canvas with brushes of comet's hair. They shall find real saints to draw from, Magdalene, Peter, and Paul. They shall work for an age at a sitting and never grow tired at all. And only the master shall, shall praise us, and only the master shall blame. And no one will work for money, and no one will work for fame. But each for the joy of the working, and each in his separate star, shall draw the thing as he sees it, for the God of things as they are. Wonderful, creative picture of the world beyond. But it's fantasy. Put alongside that the char lady who dying and said, don't pity me now, don't pity me, never. I'm going to do nothing forever and ever. Here's C.S. Lewis again, the, the last book in the Narnia series, when everything is finishing. People are dying. All their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read and which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. 
Well, there are some creative ideas as well as some ridiculous ones. What does the Bible have to tell us and what can we glean from Scripture? Well, the verse I mentioned at the beginning, it is appointed unto man once to die. I only half quoted it. The other half says, and after this, the judgment. And he was talking about it. I'm sure when he said uh, sheep and goats, which way was it? It was goats and sheep, wasn't it? It doesn't mean you're all goats and you're all sheep, incidentally. <laughs> um, but there is judgment. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. In fact, the Bible mentions several judgments. But there are two in particular that are highly relevant for us this morning. There's the judgment at the great white throne, which we're told about in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, where the decisive thing is whether your name is written in the book of life. Now, without going into all the detail of that, what is crucially clear is that life is associated with Jesus Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. As John puts it, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So it's all a question of how we respond to Christ. If there's a positive response, however you define that, um, then our names are in the book of life. And the, why is that? It's because if you go on to the next verse after the one I quoted, which is Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment, goes on to say Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. So the reason why um, we need not fear if we are in Christ and have responded to him is that Jesus Christ has borne the judgment. All the judgment against sin and evil and hatred has been absorbed into Jesus Christ on the cross, who at that point became the most evil man this world has ever known. Do you believe that? because all of the evil was compressed into him. And he said, it is finished, and the judgment is paid. There's a, there's a judgment also for believers, which Paul talks about quite often. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive what is due for him, for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And it's at this point that you reach the the Roman Catholic doctrine, which uh, they base on a certain passage in scripture which I don't think bears the interpretation, but it's from 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul talks about building on the foundation of, of Christ and he says we build in this life with wood, hay or stubble or with gold, silver or precious stones and at the end it's tested by fire and that's where the Roman Catholic Church gets its doctrine from as if we're going to be cleansed and purged and by a fiery test between when we die and when Jesus returns. It doesn't bear that interpretation because the fire destroys immediately. It's a single uh, dramatic test, but there is a test. And I, I don't know if you caught that um, news report earlier this week when the, when the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Nations said to his Russian counterpart, did you hear it? There's no purgatory for war criminals, he said. They go straight to hell. Not the kind of language you expect to hear in the top political circles, but that was there in the United Nations. 
this last week. Paul says, will we build? And uh, how we live in this world, the lesson we draw from that, does have repercussions and implications for the world beyond. Even Paul, when he was being criticized, condemned, and judged by other people, this is how he reacted in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. Praise, not blame. Remember Romans 8 begins, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So the judgment for Christians is not something to be feared, it's something to be welcomed. Yes, what we, how we've lived in this life is important, but the judgment of Christ is merciful and gracious. I'm reminded of the dowager lady who was uh, sitting for her portrait and who said, young man, I hope you'll do me justice. And he was heard to mutter, madam, I think it's mercy you need rather than justice. <laughs> all, all I can say is at the end of time, I'm glad we serve a Lord who's committed to mercy rather than justice for us if we are in Christ. But nevertheless, there is a message for us as Christians, isn't there? That we should no longer live for ourselves, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, but for him uh, who died for us and was raised again. This may surprise you. John stopped shortly before he died. We're in a debate with someone said this. He said, I cherish the hope that the majority of the human race will be saved even while I remain agnostic about how God will bring it to pass. Just drop that into your mind and you think about it. So we learn from the Bible, we learn from Jesus. How does Jesus respond to the whole idea of death and to the fact of death? Well, he's angry. There's a phrase which occurs in the story of Lazarus in Luke 11 a couple of times where it says that Jesus was deeply moved. I've never seen it accurately, accurately translated in any version of the Bible. He was deeply moved, all right? He was angry, he was livid, he was snorting with rage is what the word means. He was so angry at what death can do, the disruption and destruction it can cause in the lives particularly of those who are left behind. More than that, he shares all the pain associated with it. The shortest verse in the Bible comes in that story, John 11:35. Jesus wept. Jesus does more than sympathize and get angry about it. He gives us a promise that death is not the last word. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the question that I left ringing out at the end of the reading. That's why it stopped there. Do you believe this? That's what he said to Mary and to Martha. Because without the resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, all of it is wishful thinking. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And so, of course, he's gone on ahead 
to prepare a place for us. And more than that, I'm, my time is coming to an end. I must rush on for a moment or two, if you'll bear with me. Because Jesus gives us not only a promise, but to an extent he provides... Remember what I said at the beginning about it's only in terms of analogy and picture language. He provides a kind of pattern for us too in his own resurrection. We must beware of drawing too close a parallel, but what can we learn? Well, after the resurrection, Jesus was precisely the same person, but he was incredibly different. He had bodily form, but he could appear at different times in different places. He could travel from Jerusalem to Galilee without taking any time. He could go through locked doors. He walked all the way to Emmaus with that, those two people, fell into conversation with them. He invited Thomas to touch him. And if you think that, uh, well, he told Mary not to, the, the word when Mary sees him in the garden, and it really means don't hold on to me. In other words, to stop doing something she was already doing because he hadn't yet ascended to the Father. So he was touchable. At the lake, he could invite the disciples to come and eat with him. He cooked uh, a breakfast and he ate the fish with them. So he was the same person, utterly transformed. And it, but the, the different thing about him too was that people didn't recognize him immediately. And that's a consistent story. Uh, factor right the way through the resurrection appearances. Mary in the garden thought he was the gardener. She turned round and saw Jesus standing there. She did not know that it was Jesus until he spoke to her. The disciples on the road to Emmaus walked all seven miles in deep conversation with him, thinking he was a stranger to Jerusalem. And then he went in at their invitation and as he broke the bread, was it the familiar actions? What was it? Did they see the wounds in his hands? I don't know what it was. But that was the moment when their eyes were opened and they recognized him. The disciples at the lake, they had this miraculous catch of fish, which was an, an exact repetition of what had happened when they were first called uh, by the Lake of Galilee. And uh, so it, was, it had so much emotion it, attached to it as well and reminder of what Jesus had done before and no one dared ask him who he was because they knew it was the Lord and yet if you look back to the beginning of that story they saw this person standing on the beach and they did not know that it was Jesus so he was the same person but he was different so he was in some way completely and utterly transformed and we have no ghostly, ethereal, uh, spirit-type existence in the world beyond. We have real bodies, recognisably the same, but totally and utterly transformed. That's what we can learn from the teaching of the Bible and from Jesus. With what kind of body do they come is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. I suggest you read that whole passage through later today. And, and Paul is saying, you know, well, the bodies then, they'll be beautiful and strong, not ugly and weak like they are now, not feeble and fragile, but wonderful new bodies. We shall be, John says, like him. Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. So new bodies, no decay, 
Um, no weeping, no mourning, no tears. Uh, absolutely perfect. What's more, those new bodies, but the same people, personalities, souls, if you like, because the soul is not some inner part of us, it is us, the real us. Those bodies will inhabit a new and transformed world. Isn't that wonderful news? A world where the wolf and the lamb will feed together, where the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that fantastic? Where people will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, and there shall not be war anymore. No wonder Paul says that to die is gain. That is, as he puts it, better by far in Philippians chapter 1. Isn't it glorious? One final question, just before I close. Bear with me. Where are they now? That's what people ask me very often. They come in tears, trying to cope with grief, but, but what about now? There is this vision at the end. What about now? Where are they, the people close to me who've died? And the answer the Bible seems to give, remember what I said at the beginning, is that they are asleep. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul uses that phrase in 1 Corinthians 2. Jesus, you remember, raised Jairus' daughter. He was interrupted on the way by a lady with an issue of blood, but when he got there, uh, Jairus had said, my daughter is very ill, can you come urgently? He got there, um, but they, on the way, he received a message. Don't worry the teacher any longer, she's died. And Jesus arrived and says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Or you think of Lazarus. He was a long way away, the other side of the Jordan, when he gets the message. And he says to the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they say, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, it means he's going to recover. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So it's as if sleep is actually only picture language. And let me end by saying this. Maybe... The gap between now and the end of time, maybe, think back to Patrick Moore, is only a gap from this side of eternity, maybe. Maybe there is no gap the other side, because we won't be living in a world of space and time like we are now. It'll be a totally different and transformed world. So the problem may only be a problem from this side. What we do know is that we're going to be like him. And if we take the words of Jesus to the dying thief, he said, you remember, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, you can't take that literally either. It doesn't mean a day of 24 hours, because one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. It's only an illustration. But what it means and says to me is that our immediate next conscious experience will be to wake up in new bodies transformed in a new world which is more wonderful than we can possibly imagine. How can people resist that? How can people opt for any other form of life? I hope you're blessed and encouraged. That I think 
is what happens when we die. And at my advanced age, it probably won't be too long before I find out if I'm right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us to be blessed and encouraged and to spend the rest of our life abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that we want to serve you to the very best of our ability. And thank you for the wonderful promise and prospect that is guaranteed to us by the resurrection of Jesus. Accept our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.